Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your love. Lord, I pray that your love in, the, in these young hearts here would be multiplied by their time with you in Friends of Jesus. Thank you that you call us to be fruitful and multiply. And I pray that would happen in each of our hearts. And I pray for them as they learn of your love. They would grow and, and strengthen in it and multiply it and share it with others. Be with their, their teachers today as they're instructed. Be with us, Lord, as we hear your word as well. Multiply your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning to our 9.30 worship service. It's strange saying that, isn't it? I'm sure some of you are here and don't know each other because you go to different services. I'm sure there's some people who are seeing people they have never seen and saying, are you a regular person here? And I know there's some visitors here today. And we thank you for choosing to worship here at Faith this Lord's Day morning. Uh, we're, we're in, in every July, we do a, a series on prayer. A series of just reminding ourselves of the need to pray, to be people of prayer. And this year, we're going to look at, for the next few weeks, <clears throat> at the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> it's our annual prayer series. Um, we're going to look at four passages in the Gospel of Luke. Prayer is one of the many things that religious people do universally. It's talking to God. <clears throat> Yesterday was Independence Day, as you probably all know, and, and I, I, I'm sure maybe, maybe many people, maybe you sang a, a prayer to God that he would shed his grace on America and increase the sense of brotherhood from sea to shining sea, that song. <clears throat> in reality, we need more and more to declare our dependence, not our independence, <laughs> our dependence upon Almighty God. Americans do pray, though. The Pew Research people, a survey in 2013, talk about the frequency of prayers of Americans. 55% of Americans say they pray every day. 23% say they pray every week or every month. That's a total of 78% of people. That's Eight out of ten say they pray. They believe in a God who will do something. For what do people pray? Well, LifeWay Research had some, in 2014, last August, a survey that said that people pray um, for family and friends. 82% pray for family and friends. 74% pray for their problems. That's good. 54% pray just thanksgiving for the good things that have happened. I like that. That, that, that surprised me. 42% pray for their sins. That's good. It's good to do that. Pray that God would help you to not do that, to not to forgiveness and for power to not sin. And there's other, other things. People pray. People pray. That's a, we should be encouraged by that. Max Lucado says, prayer is not the privilege just for the pious or an opportunity for a chosen few. No. Prayer is God's open invitation to talk simply openly and powerfully. God wants to talk and communicate with his people. <clears throat> now, Luke, the writer, was a doctor and a missionary penned two New Testament books, book Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and there are, two, there are several distinctives of his writings. He was a Gentile missionary, assisted the Apostle Paul, who sought to, to reach all kinds of people in all kinds of places with the Gospel of Christ. Gentile missionary. He was a doctor. He served human beings in physical ways. Luke always reminds us of his humanity, of Jesus' humanity and, and his ministry to touch and heal people. Luke focuses on that. Luke was also a historian. He, he, he wants to give an orderly account of Jesus' life. 
and of the spreading of the kingdom. An orderly account, he says in the first part of each of those books, reminding us that the kingdom of God is, is, is God's work, not man's work. It's, it's a supernatural work. It can only be done when it's fueled by desperate people who pray to God in the name of Jesus. Our text this morning is Luke 5, 12 to 16. If you have that, we're going to stand and we'll listen to that passage. It's going to be on the overhead here. It's a Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. God's word. Maybe seated. <clears throat> the context is quite interesting. In chapter 4, there was a temptation in the wilderness of Jesus he, as he licked those temptations. Then he went back to Nazareth, his hometown. Had minimal success, really not, not much success at all. In fact, they tried to kill him in his hometown when he went back there. But a prophet's not honored in his own hometown. Chapter 5, Jesus is at the seaside. He's teaching great crowds. Uh, the disciples are there. He finishes, and there's a great catch of fish. You remember that story on the boat? And he calls Peter to, to catch men, to be a fisher of men, Peter and the others. That, that great story there. And then the passage in chapter 5 continues to unfold, as we saw here. This, this, he's in the cities, and he's healing. He heals a man of leprosy, this skin disease. And then we come to verse 15, which is a kind of a summary verse. It's going to be the focus of my message. Verse 15. It just, you notice in verse 14, the fame of Jesus, the fame. See, the news about Jesus uh, was reported all over the place. There was a big, there was a great buzz in the air. This is the days before social media now. Of course, we, you know, we could just hit, 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 we could tweet and it's all out there. This is, this is a different day. But there was an enthusiastic buzz about the incredible, amazing rabbi who could heal Jesus of Nazareth. So crowds came to hear him. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. My title is simple today, Jesus Withdraws. Jesus Withdraws. I believe in this verse, Jesus models something very important for us, the importance of withdrawing from our normal routine to talk to our Father, to withdraw from the hustle and bustle of life to talk to God. We're going to look at various verses in the Gospels as we see Jesus doing this. I want to look at four things. I want to look at him withdrawing to pray, Jesus withdrawing while experiencing great success. I want to look at Jesus withdrawing while feeling that there's still great needs. And I want to talk about him withdrawing to desolate places. Jesus withdraws. Jesus withdraws. And he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, notice it doesn't say he withdrew. It says he would withdraw. You see the different feel there of the verb that it's trying to give us? This wasn't just a one-time thing. This was a habitual thing that, that Luke wants us to see. He would withdraw. Not a one-time event. 
the very act of prayer, think about it, for Jesus was quite, it's quite startling when we think about it. Um, um, he's God come to earth. He's the God-man, God incarnate. Yet it wasn't startling when you think about it again, a little more deeply, because from eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Spirit had had eternal fellowship and conversation. Think about that. To talk to the Father was simple reflex for Jesus. That was his reflex. In the Gospels, over and over again, we see him pausing to talk to his Father. In fact, the writer of Hebrews points to, to, to in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus prayed to the Father. Now, 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 now think about it. To whom was he praying? He was praying to, to God the Father. There's a heresy that some would call, that's been called modalism, that God comes to us not in three persons, but in three different modes. It suggests that in one sense, Jesus was talking to himself. It suggests that God, man, God manifests himself in, in various modes. It's kind of like an actor in a play who has three different parts, and he keeps changing parts. No. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Th th one God in three persons. That, that, hymn, that, that holy, holy, holy hymn says it all. God in three persons. One God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. But Jesus habitually would withdraw to talk to his father. We'll look, we'll look at some examples here. The first one is, is, is Luke 6, the, the passage that we, had, we heard earlier, that he went to a mountain to pray, and he prayed all night, and, 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 he, and then he came and he called 12 to be his special followers, apostles. This was an important moment for the Lord Jesus Christ. He prayed for wisdom as he chose the 12 from among the many of those who were following him, to be special ambassadors, special representatives. He probably prayed for courage to choose Judas, who he knew would be the betrayer. We often need to, to pray for power to do what we don't want to do. Now, the power of Jesus is an interesting study. A couple of verses passes about the power of Jesus. Luke chapter 8 <clears throat> Jesus gets news that the synagogue ruler's daughter is very, very sick. In fact, on her deathbed. So he rushes through the crowd to go there, and someone touches him. It says in Luke 8, 42, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, the Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. What do you mean you, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. It's a big crowd here. You ever been on a subway? People are around. That's, what, that's the feeling here. A crowded subway. No, no everyone's, who Jesus says, verse 40 says, but, but someone touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. Power. And, and when, so, so he finally goes on, and I, maybe it was that delay, I don't know, but when he gets to Jairus' daughter, uh, 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 she, she, she's, she's not breathing. In Luke 8, 54, 55, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once. The power 
of Jesus. Didn't he lose his power? No, he didn't lose his power. He felt some power to leave, but he still had power. He had power enough to raise this little baby, this little girl who was 12 years old. In the next passage, Luke 9, 1 to 2, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He still got power, doesn't he? <laughs> he's been given, he's been healing his power, but he's got power still, enough to give to 12 men so they could have power. He didn't just give them authority, he gave them power. If, if people couldn't see the link between Jesus', Jesus his effectiveness and prayer, he made it very plain to the disciples. After, after the transfiguration on a mountain, he comes down and he sees the disciples fumbling and trying to heal um, uh, a young boy who's out of control. So Jesus heals him. And then in Mark, Mark 9, 28 to 29, he says this. When he entered the house, I mean, after the, the, all the scene, different scene now, he went to the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? I mean, you just gave us power to do these things. How come we couldn't do it? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus links power and prayer. Okay? Power. Notice carefully how Luke framed the temptations in the wilderness in chapter 4. It, it says, Jesus Full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And then he has these temptations, the three temptations. And then in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The power of the Spirit in Jesus' life. And we need that in our lives, so we need to pray. And in John 15, the, the, the upper room, he exhorts the twelve to ask the Father. And he would give them the power to do great things, to do the things that they couldn't do on their own. And like them, we are spiritually weak, and we need spiritual power from God. Many of us saw the incredible evidence of Americans praying the day after the the day of the the, the Charleston massacres a few weeks ago. Did you, did you, if you followed that, that you'll, you know, you you probably know by now that nine believers were gunned down at a Bible study on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago by a stranger who had actually sat in that Bible study and prayer meeting. He wanted, he wanted it known that it was because of race. That was the reason, because of racial hatred. And, and within 24 hours, people in that town of all races came together to make a united statement. You see the images of that. A city united. And, and how, could the, how could the family of the victims, several days later, forgive and share the gospel with this young man, this troubled young man? It's a powerful evidence to me that they lived their lives in the context of prayer, in the context of the gospel. The power to forgive comes from God. Prayer to God in the name of Jesus changes things. Ian Bounds, the great author, says, what the church needs today is not more machinery or, or better organizations, organizations or more in novel methods, but people whom the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, can use. People of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The imbalance. We need the power that comes from God. It comes as we call on the power of God in prayer. And sometimes we have to get away, to get revitalized, to get that power. 
The second thing I want to talk about is that Jesus withdraws while he's experiencing great success. I mean, as we look at this text, it says, but he withdraw, withdrew. The but comes because the, the great crowds that were there. He, he withdrew in a time of great victory, a great, a great success, humanly speaking, as people were gathering and, and the crowds were growing. You know, the Gospels are so realistic. That's why I love the Word of God. In Mark chapter 3, we, we see Jesus unsuccessfully trying to get, the, get away from the crowds. Mark chapter 3, he says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. So he's going to the sea. He's trying to go to Ocean City, okay? He's trying to get away. But great, a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. Look, check it out on a map. That's a wide area. And from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon, and when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. And then, verse 13, he went up on a mountain and caught him those whom he desired. Again, the same passage we saw, the parallel passage, and they came to him. You get the context. The crowds are getting out of control around Jesus. A few years ago, I had a conversation with, with a member of church who, um, who was frustrated because the, why is it that I can't always get a hold of you when I want you? Why is it you don't always answer the phone immediately? His sense was, you're one of the leaders of the flock and you need to have 24-hour access to your people, to your sheep. And, um, and of course, he said, you know, Jesus was always available to people. Frustration. Now, my, my instinct was, well, my first instinct, I don't think I said this, I said, Jesus didn't have a wife and kids. I didn't say that, though. I didn't go there. <laughs> I didn't go there. But what, but I, but what it, I did say that, you know, in the scriptures, we do sometimes see Jesus trying to draw back. That got me to begin to study this old day of Jesus withdrawing and pulling back. And um, I, I trust, if you've never seen it, I'll pray that after this message, you'll see that even Jesus pulled back. Even Jesus models that for us. He understands the priorities that we have in life, the things that are most important. It may not be the, your public image. It's those who know you well, your family, those who, who you interact with every day. And you need to pull back and spend time, with, focus time with them sometimes. And that is not laziness, that is godliness to do that. I, I trust this summer you'll have some time to do that. You know, the summer vacation is kind of, is in some ways it's idolatrous for people, but it's not, it's, it's, there's a biblical reason to do that, to, to get away, to take some time. We'll be doing, taking some time the next couple of weeks. To just, to just pause to, uh, to, to get regrouped in my own heart, my own life. Take time with family. Family reunion in a few weeks. Does your family do any kind of reunion, any kind of regathering time to just appreciate your extended family? Do that. It's, it's, those are fun. If, if your family doesn't do that, maybe you'll be the one to start that. They're, they're good, time, good things to do. Withdraw. Take time with family, friends. More importantly, take time with the Father. Slow down. Take time with the Father. The third thing, Jesus withdraws even while he saw great needs. Don't forget that. Yeah, there are great crowds, a lot of success, but still there are many great needs that haven't been, been met. But he withdrew. He pulled back. Think of it. 
I was thinking about the, God, about the book of Acts, how Jesus would go to the temple. And like in chapter 3, there's a man who, who needs to be healed. Wasn't he there a few months earlier when Jesus was there? Didn't, maybe Jesus passed by him. Jesus passed by somebody with a need? Yeah, Jesus passed by people with needs. Yes. That, that sounds heretical, but think about it. And yet, John 17, verse 4, he says to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Think about that. Jesus accomplished everything the Lord wanted, this father wanted him to do. R.C. Sproul says this, prayer, like everything in the Christian life, is for God's glory and for our benefit, and in that order. For God's glory and our benefit in that order. Sometimes we think that we are the ones that are most important. He says, does prayer change God's mind? The mind of God does not change, for God does not change. <clears throat> Things change. They change according to his sovereign will, which he exercises through secondary means and secondary activities. The prayer of his people is one of the means he uses to bring things to pass in the world. So if you're asking me whether prayer changes things, Sproul says, I answer with an unhesitating, yes, prayer does change things, saints. In Mark 1, we see a very long Sabbath day, a very long Sabbath day by Jesus, uh, that Jesus had. He, he began in the synagogue, the unclean spirit was, was cast out and and then he went home and he, to Simon's home and healed Simon's mother-in-law. And then at sunset, there are many healings and, and exorcisms. The entire town of Capernaum was at their door, it says. And the next verse, Mark 1, 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. It's early in the morning. The sun's just, people, the whole town's looking for Jesus. He's out there praying in the hills. And what does Jesus say? Let us go to the next town that I may preach there also. For that's why I came. Listen, Jesus didn't come to, to heal and save Everybody that was in front of him every, every moment of his day, of the day. He didn't do that. So he says, I'm going to go to the next. Though everyone in this town comparing wants him, we've got to go to other towns. See, this, this gospel is for the world, not just for your little village. This gospel is not just for Baltimore. It's for the world. Amen? Amen. Time with God restores for us a sense of wisdom, a sense of humility, a sense of perspective about our lives and about, about what the gospel's all about. Remind us that it's about grace. It's not about what we do. A, a few weeks ago, Pastor Craig um, talked about the, the General Assembly of the PCA in Chattanooga, uh, our denomination. It was the 43rd annual leadership gathering. I want to talk about that for a few minutes because I, I was there the whole week. He was only there for a little bit. I want to give you a, I want to give a hearty amen to what he shared and, and say a little bit more of what uh, I saw. <laughs> I was fortunate to be in the room during the, the historic Thursday evening discussion of, and, and vote. But the issue on the table was the very, very poor record of conservative Presbyterians, and we're conservative Presbyterians, theologically, regarding race throughout our nation's history. That was the issue. What was exciting was how the Lord brought an incredible unity and a sense of brokenness to the leaders of our church. 
in that picture, you, can, you, can, you can't see me, but I'm way in the back there waiting my turn to sign the protest that you may have heard about. One man's prayer summarized what he experienced that night. He said, Sovereign Lord, we come before you on what many of us had hoped would be a night of repentance, and before our eyes, you are turning it into a year of repentance. That summarized what happened there. Some of you may have heard that, that people were upset because we didn't repent. That's not what happened. We decided not to have a night of repentance, but a year of repentance. That's why we were excited. It was the climax of an entire week of, of, of just prayerful, spirit-filled decision-making. Let me give you a sense of, what, of, of what, some of the things that occurred. One of the key moments before this decisive vote um, on Thursday night, uh, one of the men who had been involved in the long meetings on the committee before it came to the whole assembly, he came to one of the microphones and identified himself as who he was, part of the, the committee, and he said, as we, before we vote, we need to pray. Because he said, I was in all those meetings, and now on the floor, I don't know which way to vote. And then another man stood up and said, I feel the same way. I, was in the, I don't know which way to vote. So we had a time of, 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 of prayer for this, this very, very important vote. That, we would, that it wouldn't just be a, a small majority victory, but it would be, a, be overwhelming. So we prayed and we voted, and the vote was 646 to 46. 684 to 46. It was an overwhelming desire to repent, an overwhelming desire to be unified in our repentance and how we were going to do that. And immediately, men began to go to Mike's and confess their sins, the sins of their parents, the sins of their congregations, sins committed directly against African Americans, and sins of neglect to hear the cries for equality. I saw men repenting of sins of omission and commission against people like my father and my mother, my grandfather, my grandmother. And, and in fact, it dawned on me that, that the date was June 11th. That was the anniversary of my parents' wedding. It, it, it was a very, very emotional evening for me. Because my parents were both born in Jim Crow South and lived in Jim Crow South. The Holy Spirit did a powerful work. What else did I see? I saw a man say, my uncle was in the Klan. I heard a man saying, I used to laugh at racial jokes when I was a kid. I used to, jokes that ridiculed and demoned men created in the image of God. One man said that uh, our local church did nothing when a black, disabled kid, 16-year-old, was brutally killed while in police custody. He, he confessed that. Like I listened to his sermon. He, talked, he told his whole congregation that a couple weeks later. One, one younger elder, younger elder, shared that his child, his kid, had, had recently learned the horrible truths of Jim Crow, and, and he said, Daddy, why did we treat those people like that? And then there was Elder Jim Baird, one of the, the he identified himself as one of the 12 men who, who were the founding elders of the PCA. He said, for two years, we, we wrestled with how to, how to get this organization started, and he, he gave what was perhaps the most powerful and most important speech when he said, I, I confess that in 1973, the only thing I understood was that we were starting a new denomination, which we did. And I confess that I did not raise a finger for civil rights. And he said, so I confess my sin. I'm not confessing the sin of my fathers. In other words, I'm not talking about slavery way back then. I'm confessing my sin and the sin of those 12 men. It was, you could hear a pin drop when those words came out. And then he said, the last thing of the resolution says is to take it back to your local church. 
and have your local church deal with it. He was encouraging that. He said every single congregation. And you can imagine what it would mean to have a whole denomination to work on that one issue. And that's what I propose. And here was one who got this denomination started 43 years ago doing that. Talk about power. Uh, Roy Taylor, who's a city clerk of the denomination, he, he, he said, I've been to all 43 of the, he needs a, there's a special place in heaven if you go to all 43 of those kind of meetings. But he said, I've been to all 43 of these. And he says, this writer has attended all, the, the periods of prayer and expressions of repentance and brotherly love on the Thursday evening session of the 2015 General Assembly were the most evident and powerful work of the Holy Spirit at any PCA assembly. And I would say that says it all because I was there and I felt the same way. I've been to about 10 of them and I felt the same way as I saw men on their face before God in repentance. Now, what does this mean for us? Let's continue to work for justice here in Baltimore and peace here in Baltimore and reconciliation here in Baltimore. But let's be prayerful. Baltimore is a city with great needs, a city of great needs. I was meeting with a pastor a few days ago, lunch with him, who was very much in the middle of all the conversations between the gang members and the pastors during the, the April riots. And I was, I'm very concerned still about the state of things in Baltimore. And, uh, and he is very concerned. And all I can say is we need to continue to pray for Baltimore. We need to continue to pray for this city. It's a broken city in many, many ways. We need to, be, we need to participate, if we can, with some of these prayer walks that we're seeing um, happen. The last thing I want to talk about here is that Jesus withdraws to desolate places, to desolate places, remote places, some translations. Often I go to um, Robert E. Lee Park. It's a few miles from here, about 10 minutes from here. Now, of course, Robert E. Lee, oh, he was a racist, he was a confederate. Yeah, 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 don't worry about that. The, the, the park has nothing to do with him, okay. I, it's, it's, a, it's a great place for an urban person to get away. You don't have to go very far. It's a, um, it, it, there's beautiful greenery, there's a small lake, there's a little waterfall, and there's a gentle breeze sometimes. There's a lofty clouds, and it, it's a remote, desolate place that's nearby. You need to have a place where you go, a place on a beautiful day where you can go and and because somehow God speak to us, speaks to us in creation, doesn't he? In Matthew 14 through 16, there's three instances I want to show us. Matthew 14, 15, and 16. The first one is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. And it comes after the beheading of John the Baptist. It begins like this, 14, 13. When Jesus heard this, you heard about the beheading, he withdrew from there. There's a word, he withdrew in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And as usual, when, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. That's the pattern, isn't it? He can't seem to get away. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. He healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. And the disciples are saying, these people have a long way to get home. They need to go home so they can eat. And if you know what Jesus says, instead of sending them home to eat, why don't you guys feed them? And he feed, the feeding of the 5,000 is what takes place right there. It comes at the end of a, of a weary time for Jesus. You ever been dis, so, so distracted that you can't do what you need to do? So tired you can't do because you really don't care to do what you know you need to do? You ever been in that place? I'm sure you have. It's a dangerous place to be. Your ability to, 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 to think and to choose the words that you want to say aren't always there when you're weary and tired. Jesus pulls back. Remember during a violent storm on the shipping boat, 
disciples had to go wake up Jesus. He was taking what we call a power nap. Remember that? He was taking a nap. You know, they thought the, the boat was going to go in the water, and he's taking a nap. They woke him up, and he stills the storm. And they're more afraid of him than the storm after seeing what he did. So look what happens here. <clears throat> Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Okay, so the, the 5,000 are fed, okay? He says, you guys dismiss the crowd. I need to go. I need to get away. I'm tired. I'm weary. You guys do that, and then I'll meet you on the other side. He went to the mountain by himself to pray. When the evening came, he wasn't alone. So, again, Jesus, he's weary, but he's trying to serve. He's, he, he withdraws, goes to the mountain after a long day of ministry. <clears throat> Chapter 15, the Canaanite woman, the Canaanite woman's daughter. In 15, you, you might recall this strange story. It looks initially like Jesus doesn't want to heal this little girl, remember? <laughs> it, it looks like he's, he doesn't want to heal her. He says, you want, he, he kind of, doesn't Jesus love all people? What's going on? Well, again, the passage only makes sense when you realize that he is away in a remote place with his weary disciples. The passage doesn't make sense apart from understanding the geography there. And so in 15 verses 21, it says he went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Again, look at a map. He's gone to the beach. And behold, there's this Canaanite woman. That's the context. Look, there's a very important principle. Never confuse lack of energy for lack of love. Don't, don't, never confuse lack of energy for lack of love. That principle will help you in your relationships with people. I have a grandchild now, and I, I don't have the energy I used to have with my own children. And I'm learning <laughs> that just because I don't have the energy to love doesn't mean I have the will to love. Very important principle. The, the third story, so we have the, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the Canaanite women, woman, uh, woman's daughter. <clears throat> and then this interesting story, there's a very famous story. It's the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Look, there's three, it's, we see it in three, three of the Gospels. Matthew 16, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. That's up north. Again, that's kind of a remote area. And he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then Mark 8 tells us a little bit more. He went there, and, and on the way, he asked his disciples. So he was on the way there, on the road, along the road. They, they're, they're talking to the disciples. But Luke tells us this. It happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked, who do the crowd say that I am? So you get to put the whole, all three of these together to see what's going on. What's going on? It's a time of prayer. It comes during a time of prayer. He's going to a remote place, a desolate place, to spend time with his disciples, seeking to get away from the hustle and the bustle of life. He wants to give, in one sense, his disciples a, a midterm exam to see where they are in terms of who, their understanding of who he was. Caesarea Philippi, a remote village on the shores of the Mediterranean. Jesus is the almighty divine creator who was for a season human, limited to space and time, in, in, in the incarnation, he had limited energy, strength, and capacity. There's a, there's a concept you might hear, heard, have heard of called compassion fatigue. You ever heard that phrase? Where people, you just get tired of caring for people? <laughs> now, to have reached the point of compassion fatigue would have been sin for Jesus, and Jesus didn't sin. But I see that in some of the disciples of Jesus <laughs> in the Gospels. Lord, send them away. We, we gain our compassion for people 
through spending time with God. People are sinful. So helping people means solving problems. And solving problems, God's servants need occasional breaks to restore their passion for people. So what are some of the applications? We're seeing, I've tried to show those already, some of those applications. You know, Jesus, the Son of God, withdraws. What does it mean for us? We need the spiritual power that comes from time with God. We need that power in our lives when our spirit and our energy is waning. We need to get revitalized, re-energized. Secondly, we need the renewed priorities that we see in Jesus. As he says, it's, so, it's okay to pull apart for those who, who you're called to love first. We need the perspective of, 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 that, that comes from that. The perspective that it's about what God has done, not what we've done. The perspective that it's about God's grace and not our effort. We need that perspective. And we need to regain the compassion for people that we really have, but you don't have as much when you're just tired. You know, in one sense, the, the weekly worship service is a withdrawing. It's a withdrawing from our normal routine, a withdrawal from our normal uh, life in, in this world. A time to be refreshed and renewed. <clears throat> a time to remember where our strength comes from. A time to be reminded of our own limitedness and of, of his sufficiency. And today it's a time to be reminded in a particular way as we look at these elements before us, as we do each month, that we are children of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is our identity. We're the people who pray. We're the people who have a, this contact with God. We, we, we pray because, because in Jesus' name we pray, heaven hears our prayers. That's who we are. And this table reminds us of that simple reality. This table isn't just my table, it's our table. It's the table of the Lord, and we're all invited to participate in this table. Well, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. and said, this, this is my body which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant shed for remission of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death till I come again. We ask officers to come forward. We ask you to move this table up a little bit, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah. Jesus calls, he invites us to this table. The invitation is for all who, who know his gospel, who've who have turned from their sins and, and trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. It's for those who, who have examined themselves and, and, and have asked the Spirit to examine themselves. And, and they're not hard-hearted, but they're soft-hearted towards God. It's not for people who, who think they're perfect. No, it's for those who know they aren't. It's for those who, knowing they aren't, have, they flee to Jesus Christ and flee to the blood and know that there they find perfect, total forgiveness from our Father. It's, it's for children, if you've been invited to this table, through, the, through your parents, through the session. It's not just for members of this church. This is for anyone who knows Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord and is seeking to follow him in obedience to his church. If you're a visitor and you know Christ, this is, not our, this, is, this is for you. God gives us strength. He gives us a sense of his love in a special way as we partake of the elements. We're asked to examine ourselves before we partake of this. So let, let's, let's all take a time of silent prayer. Say, Lord, prepare my heart. Make me worthy as I confess my sin.
to partake of these elements. Pray silently.